Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw. And today we're going to talk about IV induction agents. This is episode 10, which I feel like should probably be some kind of milestone. We're now into the double digits. For those of you out there who are listening and who've given me feedback on these episodes, I really appreciate it. Please feel free to give further comments or any feedback that you have either on the website at ACRAC.com, that's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, or you can email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com or at ACRACpodcast at gmail.com. I do want to encourage you, if you have thoughts on the episodes, to consider leaving the comments there on the website because it allows other people to see it, to comment further, and to get a discussion going, which can be really useful. We can all learn from each other as opposed to me being the only person leaving things on the website for other people to read. And I, of course, would appreciate learning from all of you as well. This may be the final episode before you CA3s, or recent graduates, I should say, take your written board exam on, I believe, July 29th. So in case I don't get another episode out before then, I want to wish you good luck. I know you'll do great, and it will not be as bad as it seems like it will be. You'll probably walk out of that room thinking you did terribly. I know all of us who took it in years past definitely did, but you'll still probably pass, and then it'll be done. So good luck. Study hard. You'll do great. There are a couple interesting studies that were highlighted by Rob McSweeney in his weekly Critical Care Reviews newsletter. I mentioned this on a prior episode, but it's fantastic, and I highly recommend checking it out if you're interested in critical care at all. If you go to criticalcarereviews.com, that's all one word, criticalcarereviews.com, then you can sign up for his newsletter, and he sends it out once a week, usually on Sunday night, and he highlights the research that has been released over the past week, randomized trials, meta-analyses, observational studies that are pertinent or that he feels are the most pertinent to critical care. Really interesting or really nice way to get a kind of concise summary of some of what's gone on in critical care over the past week. A couple of things you might want to check out uh, that he pointed out this week, a study by Salvanderin and colleagues which looked at pantoprazole versus placebo for stress ulcer prophylaxis and found that for patients who are taking enteral feeds, even if they're on a ventilator, if they're getting two feeds, uh, there was no advantage to pantoprazole. And so if your institution uses stress ulcer prophylaxis in patients just because they're on a ventilator, even if they're getting two feeds, you might want to think about reconsidering that since there are downsides to PPI use, although this study actually didn't find any increased negative effects in the patients getting the PPI. And then another interesting meta-analysis by uh, Paul Crano and colleagues, which found uh, increased rates of burnout in surgical specialties, especially amongst residents. And this goes along with multiple studies that have been published looking at resident and physician well-being and have found that we're not doing well. It's really something we need to work on moving forward. 
All right, let's move on to the main topic for the day, IV induction agents. Now, unfortunately, this is really a pharmacology subject. It's important. You will be asked questions about this stuff on your board exam, but it's not the most engaging of topics in the world. So this is one, as I said, I always encourage you to listen to these podcasts while exercising. In fact, there was just an article in the New York Times last week, which showed, uh, which was at least about a study that showed that people and animals who are jogging regularly learn better and retain more than people who are not. And my guess is if you are trying to learn while jogging, you get the best of all possible worlds. So especially for something dry like a pharmacology talk, I encourage you to get out there, jog, bike, do something that's going to keep you awake and engaged while you listen to this so that you can hopefully retain it. All right. So the background of IV anesthetics in general, and a lot of this talk, by the way, is pulled uh, with a lot of help from Miller's Anesthesia, the eighth edition, and also um, from uh, various articles, which I will put in the slides when I post them along with this episode. So in 1656, uh, a couple of guys, Percival Christopher Wren and Daniel Johann Major, tried injecting wine and beer into a dog's vein. I'm sure the dog wasn't thrilled with that, and I don't think it provided all that excellent an anesthetic, but it was the first known episode of an attempted IV anesthesia. In the early 1900s, a compound known as hedonol was used, and then ether and chloroform were also tried, injected into veins, but a large portion of people developed syncope, cyanosis, and pulmonary edema, none of which were, none of which were good for them. And then... Uh, Around the same time, interestingly, uh, Dr. Beer tried injecting, uh, injecting Novocaine into veins uh, and then blocking off the venous return, and this became known, of course, as the Beer Block, which is still used today for some arm surgeries. But it wasn't until 1936 that thiopental was first used, and that really began the more modern uh, use of anesthetics through the vein. I'm going to cover propofol, barbiturates, etomidate, benzos, ketamine, and dexmedetomidine in this talk. So those are the main ones that the board wants you to know in terms of IV induction agents. Opiates obviously also can be used for induction, but that'll be a whole nother episode by itself. So this is going to be non-opiate induction agents, and we'll cover the ones I mentioned. Let's start with propofol because it is now the most widely used IV hypnotic. It was introduced in the 1970s initially in the United Kingdom, but the initial formulation caused a fair amount of anaphylaxis, and so it was relaunched as an emulsion in soybean oil in 1986, and that started the modern era of propofol usage. The way propofol works, it's an alkyl phenol derivative, and it enhances GABA-induced chloride currents through binding to the beta subunit of the GABA-A receptor. And I want you to remember this because you'll see almost every one, with the exception of ketamine, but pretty much every other uh, IV induction agent, IV anesthetic, binds to the GABA receptor and usually to the GABA-A receptor. So you may be asked that and, and you want to know it. And if you don't remember for a specific drug, guess GABA-A because it is by far the most common. So propofol at lower concentrations has an indirect effect. In other words, it potentiates the action of GABA itself. You need less GABA to activate the receptor. But at higher concentrations, propofol can activate the GABA-A receptor directly. 
Propofol also inhibits, to some extent, NMDA glutamate receptors, though that's probably a more minor uh, portion of its action. And it can increase dopamine in the nucleus accumbens, which gives that sense of well-being that people get when on propofol, and decreases serotonin in the area postrema, which probably leads to its antiemetic effect. And we'll talk about all of this some more. In terms of its pharmacokinetics, propofol is oxidized and conjugated in the liver and then excreted by the kidneys. And there is some extrahepatic clearance as well, because even in people, for example, who are in an anhepatic phase of a liver transplant, you still can measure some propofol breakdown products. It's probably happening in the kidneys and the lungs. Propofol is a competitive inhibitor of CYP3A4, and one way that you'll see this manifested that you might be asked about is it can increase the duration of action of midazolam. That's first said. After a single bolus dose, levels will decrease rapidly, not because it's cleared right away by the liver, but because it's redistributed and it has a very high lipid solubility. It's then eliminated, and its initial distribution half-life is just two to eight minutes. So the reason it goes away so quickly is because it's redistributed. It has a context-sensitive half-time of 10 minutes for infusions up to three hours, and then still less than 40 minutes for infusions of three to eight hours. So it does increase, but still not by much until you get beyond that eight-hour mark. Now, clinically, you may be thinking that you've seen it last longer than that, but remember, context-sensitive half-time doesn't mean it goes away in that much time, in that half-time. It means it decreases the serum concentration by half. And depending on how high your serum concentration is, that's going to affect your wake up. So let's take a minute and talk about context-sensitive halftime because it is a really important concept. What this is, if you haven't heard of it, is for an infusion, this is referring only to infusions of medications, the longer the infusion is running for some medications, for many medications, the more it builds up in the body, and therefore when you stop the infusion, it will take longer for the effect to go away based on how long the infusion has been running. On one extreme, we have remifentanil, which does not have an increase in its context-sensitive halftime. So you can run a remifentanil infusion for 48 hours, turn it off, and it will go away at the same rate that it would have if you only ran it for 15 minutes. On the other extreme are drugs like diazepam, which if you look, and on the slides I'll include a graph of this, if you run an infusion of diazepam for even just a couple of hours, the context-sensitive halftime goes way, way up, which means, let me give you an example. If you start an infusion of, let's say, diazepam, and you turn it off after five minutes, the context-sensitive halftime means that the time it will take for the plasma concentration to fall by half is, let's say, only 10 minutes. But if you run that same infusion for two hours, now it may take four hours for the plasma concentration to fall by half so that you get a much longer duration of action once you've stopped the infusion when you've been running it longer for drugs that have a long context-sensitive halftime. All right, coming back to propofol, we said that about 10 minutes for infusions up to three hours and then 40 minutes for three to eight hours. This doesn't mean, remember, that you don't want to decrease your concentration as you go on hour by hour by hour using a propofol infusion if you're doing, let's say, a TIVA intraoperatively. You will still want that plasma level to not get so high that 
you have to wait a long time for the patient to wake up. So even though the context-sensitive halftime is less than 40 minutes for a seven-hour infusion, that only means the plasma concentration will fall by half in 40 minutes. If falling by half still has a full anesthetic dose in your plasma, it's not going to cause you to wake up. All right. Propofol will start to reduce EEG activity in 20 seconds and have a peak effect in 90 seconds. So it's quite rapid in its effect. And because it decreases cardiac output and therefore decreases hepatic blood flow, it can actually impair its own clearance. It's cleared by the liver. And if you decrease liver blood flow, you will, of course, decrease the amount that can be cleared. So if you allow hypotension to persist, you can reduce the rate of clearance of propofol and prolong its duration of action. Propofol causes a significant reduction in cardiac output, and it's much more significant in older patients. So an 80-year-old needs only about 50% the dose of a 20-year-old to get the same effect. And even though it's cleared hepatically, you don't need to reduce the dose in hepatic disease because it's so efficiently cleared and because of the extra hepatic clearance. So patients, even with liver disease, can still clear propofol at a normal rate. Also, you will get increased plasma levels of midazolam, as I mentioned, and also of remifentanil, actually, when you're using propofol concomitantly. Let's move on and talk about the pharmacodynamics. The onset of hypnosis after a dose of 2.5 milligrams per kilogram, as I said before, is very fast. It's about 20 seconds, and the peak effect is at 90 seconds. The ED50, so the effective dose for 50% of the population for loss of consciousness, is 1 to 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. The duration of action, though, is dose-dependent and usually will give a larger dose to a more stable younger patient, so maybe 2, 2.5 milligrams per kilogram. And after that dose, the duration of action is going to be in the 5 to 8-minute range. The highest dose of any type of patient is needed in a healthy small child, so less than two years old, and then with age, the necessary dose decreases. And as I mentioned before, for an 80-year-old, you only need half the dose of a 20-year-old. Propofol can suppress seizures, but interestingly, can also cause them, and so uh, is not as clear-cut and anti-epileptic as we sometimes think. It will decrease ICP by 30 to 50%. It also decreases cerebral perfusion pressure and decreases intraocular pressure by 30 to 40%. The way that it's decreasing ICP so significantly is probably because it drops the blood pressure, therefore decreasing cerebral blood flow, and therefore decreasing ICP. That's a major part of it, and so not necessarily uh, a good way to decrease ICP. It does, however, leave cerebral autoregulation relatively intact, allowing your brain to still adjust the blood flow as needed. What are propofol's effects on respiration? So an induction dose of propofol will, as you've seen many times in the operating room, produce apnea for 30 seconds or longer, depending on the dose, and it can be significantly longer with co-administration of other medications such as midazolam or opiates. A maintenance infusion, on the other hand, will decrease the tidal volume by about 40% and increase the respiratory rate by about 20%, but will not necessarily cause apnea, even at doses of an infusion up to 200 mics per kilo per minute. And propofol, there's some thought that it may have some bronchodilatory properties, but that's not definitively known. 
Propofol's effects on the cardiovascular system are most notable for decreased blood pressure by 25 to 40%. And this is due to both a decreased systemic vascular resistance, so peripheral vasodilation, and to decrease cardiac output due to a direct cardiac depressant effect. Heart rate, interestingly, can go up or down by about 10% or stay the same. And part of that is because propofol inhibits the baroreceptor reflex tachycardia that would normally result from hypotension. And so even though you get hypotensive, you don't see the tachycardia, which can be a good thing for patients, for example, with coronary artery disease. Not the hypotension, but at least the lack of tachycardia. The hemodynamic effects usually lag behind the hypnotic effects and take about twice as long to see. So patients will go to sleep before they get hypotensive. And interestingly, propofol can suppress atrial tachycardias, which is why if you've uh, been in the EP lab, they often don't want you to use propofol when they're doing their EP studies there. Propofol will reduce myocardial blood flow and oxygen consumption and usually will preserve the supply-to-demand ratio. So even though it decreases myocardial blood flow, it also decreases myocardial oxygen consumption, leaving your supply-to-demand ratio intact. Propofol may also have some cardioprotective effects at higher doses, and this is probably more commonly seen when using combination with inhaled anesthetics. Let's talk about some common uses and doses. So for induction of anesthesia, again, this is going to be highly dependent on the individual patient. Older, sicker patients need much less than younger, healthier patients, but somewhere in the neighborhood of one to two and a half milligrams per kilogram. And this should be dosed, as I mentioned in the last episode, based on lean body weight for an induction dose. It should definitely, as I said, be adjusted for age and reduced if you're using a pre-medication with it. Maintenance of anesthesia, of general anesthesia, should be somewhere in the 50 to 150 mics per kilo per minute. This based on total body weight, but again, adjusted to the individual. Sometimes you need much less, sometimes you need significantly more. Young kids often need much more. Sedation, meaning someone who's awake undergoing MAC anesthesia, usually is going to be in the 25 to 75 mics per kilo per minute range. Propofol can also be used as an antiemetic. And for that, you can either give about 10 to 20 milligrams IV intermittently or an infusion of around 10 mics per kilo per minute. So definitely a sub-hypnotic dose, but can have significant antiemetic properties. For infusions of propofol, you will usually start to get amnesia around 30 mics per kilo per minute. Even though a patient may not be asleep at that dose, they usually will lose their memory of what's happening at around that dose. Advantages of propofol include that it does not prolong neuromuscular blockade at all, but while not prolonging neuromuscular blockade and not giving any neuromuscular blockade, it actually can provide good intubating conditions even without paralysis. It's even better in combination with opiates to provide good intubating conditions. And one technique that people like to use if they can't use neuromuscular blockade or don't want to is to give a relatively large dose of propofol combined with a dose of remifentanil. And something like 90% of the time, you can still get significantly similar intubating conditions to that that you would get with succinylcholine. So it's pretty good for that. Propofol, of course, is not a malignant hyperthermia trigger and so is safe to use in people with a suspected history of malignant hyperthermia. It does not cause adrenal suppression as Atominate does, which we'll talk about when we talk about Atominate. It often gives people pleasant dreams 
And it, as we mentioned, can be an anti-emetic even at low doses. There was a study uh, mentioned in Miller's anesthesia chapter on this that talks about using it in breast surgery where it was as effective, uh, even at just a low-dose adjunct to whatever other general anesthetic, uh, just as effective as Zofran at preventing post-op nausea and vomiting. And it can also relieve puritis from opiates, neuraxial opiates, and also from cholestasis. As far as adverse effects go, of course, the most common is hypotension. The uh, propofol can also cause anaphylactoid reactions, and especially people who have multiple allergies can be more prone to this, so keep that in mind. Propofol can cause pancreatitis, usually thought to be from a hypertriglyceridemia. It's more common in older patients and, of course, patients on longer duration infusions at a higher dose. That's why people in the ICU who are on propofol infusions, we always check daily triglycerides. And if they start to go up significantly, we'll stop the propofol infusion. Pain on injection, as we've all seen in the OR many times, and rarely you can actually get thrombophlebitis of the vein that it's going in. And then, of course, the very rare but dreaded complication of propofol infusion syndrome. So this is usually only seen at doses greater than 70 mics per kilo per minute for more than 48 hours, but has been reported in shorter durations and lower doses. What you see is acute bradycardia leading to asystole with metabolic acidosis, rhabdomyolysis, hyperlipidemia, fatty liver, hyperkalemia, and probably... What's happening here is that there's a genetic disorder involving fatty acid metabolism in some people that at least is involved, if not the main causative mechanism. This was first reported in pediatrics, but has since been seen in adults. And it's why we really try, if we have to keep people on a propofol infusion for any long period of time in the ICU, to keep it at a much lower dose than 70 mics per kilo per minute. All right, let's move on and talk about barbiturates. So, the three that we'll mention are thiopental, methohexital, and phenobarbital. Thiopental, for a long time, was the main medication used for induction, but has almost completely been supplanted by propofol at this point. It's sometimes still used uh, for cerebral protection, as in someone with status epilepticus. Methohexital is still used for induction, especially for electroconvulsive therapy, because of its ability to uh, maintain a normal seizure threshold and to be relatively fast-acting, and then phenobarbital for, of course, seizure suppression. The mechanism of action here is very similar. As I said, these are all going to be similar to propofol in that it binds to the GABA-A receptor and enhances the GABA effect at low doses and directly stimulates it at high doses, causing an increased chloride current and hyperpolarization of the end plate. Barbiturates reduce the cerebral use of oxygen, the CMRO2. They reduce ICP and cerebral, cerebral blood flow, but they preserve cerebral perfusion pressure due to a greater drop in ICP than MAP. So they will drop MAP and they will drop ICP, but they drop ICP more than MAP. So unlike propofol, the decrease in ICP is not mostly from the decreased blood pressure. It's uh, partly from that, but it's also uh, because of a large reduction in CMRO2. And so these are thought to be more cerebral protective. In terms of pharmacokinetics, they're all hepatically metabolized and then excreted in the urine, except for phenobarbital, which is excreted up to 90% unchanged in the urine. There's a rapid redistribution, which causes a termination of action after a single dose, so just like propofol. And 
these have a much longer context-sensitive halftime than propofol. So remember, if these are used as a an infusion, over time, they will build up to a much greater extent than propofol. And while propofol, even after eight hours, takes only 40 minutes for the plasma level to decrease by half, after eight hours, the barbiturates will take much longer to decrease by half. In terms of pharmacodynamics, a single dose will last about five to 10 minutes and then redistributes to lean tissues. Methohexatol is a little faster even than thiopental, but both are fairly fast. The wake-up is also a little faster after methohexatol than thiopental because of greater hepatic uptake. And again, methohexatol and that really rapid onset and wake-up is an advantage for ECT cases. With repeated dosing, remember, because of the increased context-sensitive halftime, the recovery can be quite prolonged. And this was main, one of the main reasons why they were replaced by propofol for many uses. In terms of their effect on the respiratory and cardiovascular systems, they cause a dose-dependent respiratory depression and then apnea after an induction dose. They cause peripheral vasodilation and a negative inotropic effect on the heart itself. They increase the heart rate by about 10 to 35% from a baroreceptor reflex. So unlike propofol, they don't blunt that baroreceptor reflex. And this can be harmful, obviously, in patients with coronary artery disease because of that tachycardia that you can get combined with the hypotension. They can prolong the QT interval. So need to have caution with anyone already with a long QT. And in hypovolemia, they can really vastly reduce cardiac output. So someone who, for example, is in hemorrhagic shock, a dose of a barbiturate can reduce their cardiac output by 70%. In addition to that, other adverse effects include a garlic or onion taste on injection. These are things probably most of us who haven't used thiopental uh, haven't seen, but evidently it can cause that. Also, they can, be, uh, they can cause allergic reactions. They can cause local tissue irritation or rarely necrosis of tissue. And they are inducers of the P450 system, so it can affect the metabolism of other medications. And they can cause bronchoconstriction in asthmatics, which can be a problem for anyone who's at risk for bronchoconstriction. I will give you the dosing, uh, though I think it's unlikely, at least for thiopental, that you'll ever need to know it. The thiopental dose is 3 to 4 milligrams per kilogram, and with that, you get a very rapid onset in 10 to 30 seconds. For methohexatol, the dose is less, so it's 1 to 1.5 milligrams per kilogram, and we'll have a similar onset, very rapid. All right, let's move on to benzodiazepines. So there are several of them. Midazolam, of course, Versed, which we're very familiar with, is a short-acting there are a couple of intermediate-acting agents, lorazepam or Ativan, and then temazepam, and then the long-acting diazepam. Flumazenil, which I'll mention briefly at the end, is the antidote to uh, benzodiazepines, and it's nice to have. It has, though, a very short half-life, and so as we'll talk about, you have to be very cautious because if you give it to reverse the acute effects of a benzodiazepine overdose, it can go away much faster than the benzodiazepine itself, and you can get recurrent respiratory depression. It should not be a surprise that the mechanism of action is through a GABA-A receptor. It enhances the response to GABA, and unlike barbiturates, it doesn't directly, even at higher doses, activate the GABA receptor. By enhancing the GABA chloride flow, it leads to hypnotic, sedative, anxiolytic, amnestic, anticonvulsant, and muscle relaxation properties. 
Benzodiazepines increase the seizure threshold. In other words, they make it harder for your brain to seize, which is a good thing if you are at risk of seizure, unless, of course, you are trying to have a seizure, like in an ECT session, in which case you'd want to avoid these medications. And they maintain normal cerebral blood flow to CMRO2 ratio, so cerebral perfusion pressure is maintained. In terms of their pharmacokinetics, midazolam, very rapid onset, less than one minute, and a peak effect in two to three minutes. It has a distribution half-life of six to 15 minutes, meaning the effect will go away in six to 15 minutes, not because it is eliminated from the body, but because it's redistributed to other areas of the body, like lean tissues, muscles that don't have an effect from it, at least not a hypnotic effect. It's hepatically metabolized by the CYP system, and it does, Versed does have an active metabolite called 1-hydroxymedazolam. Now, this is eliminated fairly rapidly and efficiently by the kidneys, so with normal kidney function, it's not really an issue. But when patients have renal impairment, this metabolite, which is an active metabolite, can build up and cause significantly prolonged duration of action of medazolam. Ativan or lorazepam is conjugated in the liver, not by the CYP system, to inactive compounds. So renal impairment doesn't prolong its action because those, uh, those inactivated compounds won't have any action. But liver failure can prolong the action because it won't be conjugated. An infusion of Ativan is a problem over time because it's in propylene glycol. And so you can actually get propylene glycol toxicity from an Ativan infusion. Remy-Mazolam, interestingly, is a new benzodiazepine, which, like Remy-Fentanyl, is cleared and broken down by nonspecific tissue esterases. And so the idea with Remy-Mazolam is that it will, like Remy-Fentanyl, not build up at all, will go away very quickly no matter how long it's used for. We may see that more in the future. In terms of effects on the respiratory system, Benzos reduce the muscular tone in the upper airway and put patients at risk for obstruction. They do reduce the response to increased CO2. They also reduce the response to hypoxia. And and this is very significant. They have a synergistic effect with opioids, which means that it's not just additive. It's more. It's synergistic. So the respiratory depression that you can see with opioids or the respiratory depression you can see with benzos on their own – are more than added together when you use the two together, and you have to be very cautious of that. Midazolam PO up to reasonable doses actually has very little effect on respiration and so is fairly safe to give uh, to kids, for example, in the preoperative setting. In terms of cardiovascular effects, there is a small decrease in SVR leading to a small drop in blood pressure, but certainly nothing, uh, nothing to the same extent that you see with propofol or barbiturates. Benzos preserve the baroreceptor reflexes and maintain cardiac output. Interestingly, in patients with increased filling pressures, they can act like nitroglycerin and actually help decrease those filling pressures and increase cardiac output. Let's talk about uses and doses. So for pre-medication, and the goal here being anxiolysis, amnesia, reduced post-op nausea and vomiting, midazolam, if given PO, is usually given at 7.5 to 15 milligrams PO, or if it's used IVs, given at about a half to two milligrams IV. Ativan, less commonly used, but can be given at two to four milligrams PO or 0.25 to one milligrams IV. 
for ICU sedation, we really try to avoid benzos because of their effect on delirium, causing increased risk of delirium in patients, and because they can really build up because of Versed's active metabolite or, uh, in general, just their increased context-sensitive halftime. Uh, but if they're absolutely necessary, then they can be used. And uh, for Versed, we will usually have people on somewhere in the 2 to 4 milligrams an hour. But over time, that can go up significantly as people develop tachyphylaxis. Induction of anesthesia uh, with midazolam, 0.3 milligrams per kilogram adjusted for age. So if you're going to induce with uh, Versed, that would be the dose. And obviously, the older the patient, the less you would need. Reduction of post-op nausea and vomiting. So interestingly, IV doses given after induction as low as just one milligram IV have been shown to reduce the risk of post-op nausea and vomiting. And so you have to balance that against the risk of post-operative delirium in older patients, but for younger patients might be a good reason to use it. Adverse effects of benzos. So lorazepam and diazepam, again, less commonly used, but can cause uh, venous irritation and even thrombophlebitis. All of them can have extended effects when used multiple times or as an infusion. As I mentioned, they can cause postoperative delirium. And though they give the appearance of sleep, the sleep that benzos cause is not restorative sleep. And so it can actually lead clinicians to think that their patients are getting good sleep when, in fact, they are not. And that can be a dangerous thing. You should never be giving your patient in the ICU a benzo at night for the purpose of, quote, helping them sleep, even if they tell you that that is what they do at home or that's what they think is a good thing, you really want to think twice because the sleep they're getting and they really need it if they're in the ICU is not going to be the kind of sleep that's going to help them recover. Flumazenil, remember, is a competitive antagonist of the benzodiazepines. It has a short half-life, and so you may get a rebound effect of the agonist itself. If you're trying to reverse an agonist, you may need to use an infusion at about 30 to 60 mics per minute uh, to prevent the uh, initial overdose of the benzo from coming back. It has a rapid onset, about one to three minutes, and lasts somewhere in the 30, I'm sorry, in the three to 30 minute range. So onset one to three minutes lasts three to 30 minutes. And you have to be very cautious in using this with anyone who might be on chronic benzodiazepines because even after just a couple of weeks of using them, flumazenil can cause acute withdrawal and that can lead to seizures. Let's move on to ketamine. Ketamine was first synthesized in 1962 and then first used in humans in 1965 and released for clinical use in 1970. It is a fencyclidine and binds to the NMDA receptor. It's a racemic mixture of S and R ketamine. The S isomer is more potent than the R and has fewer psychomimetic effects, but of course is more expensive. Only 20% uh, of ketamine is bioavailable after oral use because of significant first-pass metabolism, but it can be used orally. Ketamine's most significant action is at NMDA receptors. So it also has some effect at opioid receptors and monoaminergic receptors, but again, most significantly at the NMDA receptors where it inhibits the, the NMDA glutamine input to the GABA system. So still acting through the GABA system, but this time not at the GABA A receptor, but at the NMDA receptor. Also acts at the spinal cord where it inhibits acetylcholine release. Ketamine, different than other anesthetics, produces a dissociative anesthesia. 
And it's called this because patients may not appear asleep. Their eyes may be open. They may have movement. Their reflexes may be intact, but they are not conscious. In terms of the pharmacokinetics of ketamine, it's metabolized in the liver to norketamine and hydroxynorketamine. Norketamine has some activity, but it is less active than ketamine. The metabolites are then excreted in the urine. And the bioavailability, as I mentioned before, orally is 20 to 30%. And intranasally, it can be given intranasally, is about 40 to 50% bioavailable. Ketamine is fairly efficiently cleared. So even in mild renal disease, you don't really see a prolonged duration of action. Though in severe renal disease, you need to be more careful. The norketamine, because it has less activity than ketamine, will tend to not show a significant duration of extended duration of action until you really have significant buildup. The onset of action is very quick with ketamine, 30 to 60 seconds. It will peak in about one minute and lasts about eight to 10 minutes in terms of its anesthetic properties. Though patients will not get fully oriented again, usually for 15 to 30 minutes after a dose. What you'll see in patients when the ketamine is acting is a dilation of the pupils. Often patients will have nystagmus. You'll get increased lacrimation and salivation. This can be treated if you need to treat it with glycopyrrolate or atropine. Patients will sometimes get increased muscle tone and have purposeless movements. And the action of ketamine can be prolonged by concomitant benzodiazepines, which are given very frequently because they can also prevent some of the psychomimetic effects. Ketamine has some significant advantages in terms of post-op analgesia. So sub-anesthetic do doses can produce analgesia. So you, can, you don't need to put someone completely out. You can use a sub-anesthetic dose and have a significant effect in terms of its reduction in opioid requirements. It inhibits central hypersensitization. So because of its effect at blocking the NMDA receptors can prevent people from developing hyperalgesia, either from the surgical stimulus itself or from the acute effect of opiates, which can cause hyperalgesia. It also can attenuate acute tolerance to opioids. And of course, it can reduce the dose of opioids needed. One of the pain attendings at UCSF when I was a resident would tell the story of a patient who had come in who was on extremely high doses of uh, fentanyl uh, in the ICU, just escalating, escalating so much so that the pharmacy was saying, we're going to run out of fentanyl. The patient was getting milligrams and milligrams of fentanyl. And when they started a ketamine infusion, the dose was reduced drastically, drastically reduced. So it really can have a significant effect in that sense. In terms of effects on the central nervous system, ketamine will increase the oxygen use of the brain. It will increase cerebral blood flow and increase ICP, but it does preserve responsiveness to carbon dioxide. Emergence reactions uh, occur in about 10 to 30% of people after either a pure ketamine anesthetic or use of ketamine along with other anesthetics. And these usually consist of vivid dreams, extracorporeal experiences, and hallucinations that can be fairly disturbing to patients, and they can last from one to several hours after the end of the ketamine infusion or ketamine boluses. These incidences can be reduced by use of a benzodiazepine or propofol co-administered with the ketamine. In terms of effect on the respiratory system, you get a transient decrease in miniventilation after a bolus of 2 milligrams per kilogram, but very rarely do you get apnea. It takes very high doses, much more than necessary for induction of anesthesia to cause apnea. 
Ketamine is a bronchial smooth muscle relaxant and therefore improves the compliance of the lungs. And it can also directly treat status asthmaticus and is as effective as inhaled anesthetics in this regard. You will often see increased salivation, but this, as I mentioned before, can be modulated by the use of atropine or glycopyrrolate. Ketamine's cardiovascular effects are usually noted to increase blood pressure, heart rate, and cardiac output, but it also has a direct cardiodepressant effect. Ketamine is an indirect stimulant because it activates the, sympath- uh, the sympathetic nervous system, causing release of catecholamines. It also inhibits the vagus nerve and inhibits norepinephrine reuptake. But its cardiodepressant effect is a direct effect. It has a direct effect on the myocardium. So what can happen is in patients with presynaptic catechol stores that are depleted, either from repeated doses of ketamine or from extreme stress, uh, the cardiac depressant effect can predominate. And so then you can actually see a decrease in blood pressure, a decrease in cardiac output with ketamine as opposed to the usual increase that you would expect to see. It can also cause an increase in pulmonary pressure, and so you'd want to be cautious in patients with severe pulmonary hypertension. Propofol and benzodiazepines can blunt the hemodynamic effects of ketamine, such as tachycardia. And so if you want to use ketamine, but you don't want to cause a significant amount of tachycardia, such as a patient with coronary artery disease, you can give it along with some propofol or versed. And a bolus of ketamine is more likely to cause these effects than a constant infusion. Ketamine is used for a variety of things, induction of anesthesia. So in hemodynamically unstable patients or in patients who have bronchoconstriction, it can be a great tool. It also can be excellent in patients with cardiac tamponade because it maintains or even increases heart rate. For pain management, we talked about part of a multimodal regimen, which can reduce opiate use for chronic pain and for management of acute procedures like fracture reduction in the ER because it maintains respiration while allowing painful procedures to take place. And then for sedation, especially in pediatrics where there's less chance of emergent emergence reactions. The dose for induction of anesthesia is going to be 0.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram IV or 4 to 6 milligrams per kilogram IM. For maintenance of general anesthesia, 30 to 90 mics per kilo per minute. For sedation, 0.2 to 0.8 milligrams per kilogram or 2 to 4 milligrams per kilogram IM. And for a sub-anesthetic or a decrease in opiate requirement type dose during anesthesia, running it along as part of a multimodal regimen, you can use doses as low as 3 to 5 mics per kilo per minute and see a reduction in your opiate requirement postoperatively even though you were using a sub-anesthetic dose of ketamine. Adverse effects of ketamine include increased ICP and increased intraocular pressure, increased myocardial oxygen consumption, repeated abuse type doses. So someone who is repeatedly using this for purposes of abuse of ketamine can cause liver and renal toxicity, but really rarely seen in medical use. And then the preservative chlorobutanol is neurotoxic. So standard ketamine, which has that preservative, can't be given neuraxially. There is a preservative-free form of S-ketamine, which can be used neuraxially. All right, we're getting long here. It's almost 43 minutes, and we still have atominate and dexmedetomidine to go. Usually, I like to keep these episodes less than 40 minutes, but rather than break off and then have a mini-episode with atominate and dexmedetomidine, I'm going to press forward. Feel free to uh, stop and get some water if you're out on your run, or pause it and finish on your next run. 
So Atomidate, first clinically used in 1972 and then widespread use in the 70s, but then began to taper off in the 80s with reports of adrenal suppression. And we'll talk more about that as the major limiting factor to the use of Atomidate. Atomidate's mechanism of action, again, as most of these, through GABA-A facilitation, so a lower dose of GABA required to activate the receptor, and at higher doses, it can activate the receptor independently, much like barbiturates and propofol. In terms of pharmacokinetics, it's cleared by the liver, by ester hydrolysis, and then excreted in the kidneys and in the bile, and the metabolites are not active. The initial offset, as with most of these drugs, is due to redistribution. So even in liver disease, you won't have an increased duration of action from an initial dose. The initial dose of, let's say, 0.3 milligrams per kilogram is going to last somewhere in the 6 to 8 minute range. Clearance is not altered by hypovolemia, and it's really unique in that sense that even in a trauma patient with hemorrhagic shock, you really won't have an alteration in the duration of action or even the hemodynamic effects and that's very unique to this drug. It has a short context-sensitive half-time, even less than propofol. So again, a, an infusion, if we were going to do an infusion, would not build up as much, but we're, we don't use infusions anymore because of significant adrenal suppression. In terms of its effect on the CNS, it reduces cerebral blood flow by 34% and CMRO2 by 45% with no change in, no change in MAP, so a favorable effect. Cerebral perfusion pressure is maintained or even increased because of the improved uh, oxygen supply-demand ratio, and it can acutely decrease ICP by up to 50% if it's elevated. So with someone with elevated ICP, Atomidate can bring it back to normal, but this is a transient effect and not maintained unless you continue giving the Atomidate, which because of the adrenal suppression, we don't do. The respiratory effects of Atomidate include... With induction dosing, brief hyperventilation, then followed by brief apnea, and a ventilatory response uh, to carbon dioxide that is depressed. In terms of cardiovascular effects, it is an extremely hemodynamically stable medication, even, as I mentioned, in a hemorrhagic shock model. You can see some hypertension and tachycardia, but significantly less so than ketamine. It maintains myocardial oxygen supply-to-demand ratio because it does not affect, doesn't cause hypotension and has no analgesic effect. So it does need to be given with an opiate to prevent hypertension and tachycardia in response to intubation. If you just give Atomidate and then intubate, you can see that tachycardia, which can be deleterious in terms of oxygen demand of the heart. The endocrine effects, uh, again, the most significant side effect being the endocrine effects. So it causes a dose-dependent inhibition of 11-beta-hydroxylase, which will decrease both cortisol and mineralocorticoid production. And interestingly, this occurs at much lower doses than needed for hypnosis, more than 20 times less. And so you get a suppression of the adrenal axis that lasts much, much longer than your hypnosis lasts. In fact, a single dose can cause adrenal suppression up to 72 hours. Because of this effect, interestingly, Atomidate can be used to treat hypercortisolemia, though not something that we usually will be involved in. When used for induction of anesthesia, the usual dose is going to be 0.2 to 0.6 milligrams per kilogram, and this is going to be less if given with a pre-medication. It's, as I mentioned before, going to be an excellent choice in trauma where there might be potential hemorrhage or unstable hemodynamics, and it can produce even longer seizures in an ECT. So sometimes if you start with methohexitol but 
the seizures aren't long enough, you may switch to Atomidate the next time around for that patient. But really, induction of anesthesia is the only way it's used anymore. We're not going to use this for prolonged sedation because of the significantly increased adrenal suppression when used beyond a single dose. In addition to, cerebr- uh, to adrenal suppression, other adverse effects include a high rate of nausea and vomiting, pain on injection, myoclonus, and this can be seen in up to 70% of people. This is usually reduced by giving Versed or magnesium just prior to giving the Atomidate. And then hiccups can be caused in a, a high percentage of people as well. All right, let's bring it home with dexmedetomidine, also known as Presidex. This is a commonly mispronounced drug, not the Presidex part, but when people try to say dexmedetomidine, they often say dexmetomidine, but it is actually dexmedetomidine, dexmedetomidine. It is an alpha-2 receptor agonist, and it's very specific for the alpha-2 receptor, so it has a much higher affinity or selectivity for the alpha-2 receptor than clonidine. It's a 1,600 to 1 alpha-2 to alpha-1 receptor agonist compared to clonidine, which is a 220 to 1 preference, so much more specific. It's used for sedation, anxiolysis, withdrawal, and delirium, and we'll talk more about those. It is actually an S enantiomer of metatomidine, which is used and has been used for a long time in veterinary medicine, as it turns out. Its pharmacokinetics are notable for an almost complete biotransformation in the liver, with some, it's not completely involved with the P450 system, but a portion of it is uh, metabolized through the P450 system, though it tends not to really uh, have much involvement with other medications or to impair other medications that use the P450 system, so fairly safe from that perspective. Its clearance is impaired in liver failure, but not renal failure because of uh, the inactive metabolites or at least not renal impairment. Severe renal disease, severe renal failure will actually cause an increased sedative effect, but not because of the buildup, but because of decreased protein binding and therefore more active drug. The context-sensitive halftime of dexmedetomidine is 4 minutes after a 10-minute infusion and 250 minutes after an 8-hour infusion. So you can see it does increase quite a bit. And this is significant because you'll see sometimes in the ICU people will be on a dexmedetomidine infusion for days, and then people will try to very slowly taper it, which doesn't make any sense. The context-sensitive halftime is so long that when you turn it off, it will take a long, long time for the plasma concentrations to fall, and so it will essentially self-taper. Its effects in the CNS are notable for a sedative hypnotic effect that is through the alpha-2 receptor in both the brain and the spinal cord. And this is unique uh, from most of the other IV anesthetics in that it's independent of the GABA system. Interestingly, it acts through some natural sleep pathways and so actually produces sleep that is more natural in its appearance than a lot of the other medications like benzodiazepines and so maybe a better option in terms of promoting sleep in the ICU. It's also been thought to reduce rates of delirium and potentially, even though certainly more study is needed on this, potentially be able to treat delirium in the ICU. It suppresses pain transmission in the spinal cord and can reduce post-op narcotic requirements by up to 50% with patients who remain on an infusion. It reduces the MAC of inhaled anesthetics. It can enhance neuraxial blockade when given epidurally, as can clonidine. 
it reduces cerebral blood flow, but it has an unclear effect on CMRO2. It does maintain cerebral autoregulation, but the overall effect on the cerebral supply-demand ratio is still to be determined. It does not reduce evoked potentials or seizure activity, so it's a good medication to use as an adjunct during, for example, a craniotomy or a spine surgery when neuromonitoring is being used or during seizure mapping. Its effects on the cardiovascular system are most notable for a bradycardia, which you can see up to a 30% reduction in heart rate, or with bolus dosing, sometimes a severe reduction in heart rate or even uh, a sinus pause. A reduction in cardiac output of up to 35%, partly, of course, through the bradycardia. And interestingly, with a bolus dose, you can see an initial increase in blood pressure because a, a bolus dose can, can actually have some effect on alpha-1 receptors and cause an initial uh, hypertension because of that vasoconstriction and then lead to uh, the subsequent bradycardia and hypotension. In general, if you're going to give a loading dose, giving it slowly and over an extended period of 10 to 15 minutes can help attenuate that side effect. In terms of uses and doses, this medication is used frequently in the ICU for sedation at doses of 0.2 up to 1.5 mics per kilo per minute. It's used as a pre-medication or can be at doses of 0.3 to 0.7 mics per kilo given slowly to prevent the bradycardia. It can be a really nice adjunct for, for example, an awake craniotomy because it can provide both analgesia and sedation while still allowing patients to respond. It has opioid sparing effects and therefore is good for bariatric patients who may be at risk for obstruction postoperatively. It's a good medication to use for awake fiber optic intubation because it provides sedation without respiratory depression. It also can provide some dry mouth, which makes it even more ideal for an awake intubation. It has been used, as I mentioned before, to treat withdrawal and delirium, although it's a little unclear. The withdrawal data is pretty good in terms of the delirium. It's a little unclear whether it actually can help treat it or not. Certainly, it seems to do a better job in terms of not causing delirium than benzodiazepines and opiates. And it's frequently used to wean patients from the ventilator in the ICU. So patients who, for example, are waking up agitated and are were unable to get mechanics and see how we think they'll do when extubated, we can put on dexmedetomidine and have them be much calmer. They can actually be extubated while still on it. Some people call that dextubation for dexmedetomidine extubation. And then they can be uh, come off of their Presidex drip at that point once they're extubated and doing well. And in terms of adverse effects, really we've covered them. It's just the bradycardia, hypotension, and the uh, theoretically you could think of the prolonged duration of action, the long context sensitive halftime after a long infusion as a side effect, though it's unclear that this has any major downsides unless it's causing hypotension, in which case you may have prolonged hypotension even after turning off the drip. All right, that's it for today. Please remember to leave comments on the website at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. You can also sign up for the mailing list on the website, and you can email me or leave comments. Email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com or ACRACpodcast at gmail.com. I love to hear from you. Love to hear your comments, what you think we should be covering, what you think we should be doing differently. Again, good luck to all of you who are getting ready to take your written board exams. You're going to do really well, I have no doubt. That's it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, 
what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.